morning, and um, I had my welcome to Todd's. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, this is what we're going to do. We're looking at the uh, letter that Paul wrote to the, first, to, to the Corinthians, the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, actually, the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians. We don't have the first one. But anyways, it's called 1 Corinthians. That's where we are. And we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. And um, what I'd like to do is I want to read through uh, the whole chapter, uh, all 21 verses. And then I want to walk, come back and walk through it and help put some of it together. Because uh, you can think about it this way to give you some context. Chapter 1, beginning in about verse 10, um, to the end of chapter 4-ish, really to the end of chapter 6. But he's, but he's, de- he's, he's having to say some hard things to the church he, he, there in Corinth. He's heard some reports about um, the way that they're living with each other in the church. And the first four chapters are dealing specifically with the divisions that they have, that they're, you know, they're divided up into these parties and factions, and, and they're pitting groups against each other. And Paul says, look, that's not how we live in the church. And so chapter 4 is kind of the culmination of all that he's been saying about the division that they're having in the church. And so I want to read all of chapter 4, and then I'm going to take you to the middle of chapter 4 and show you what this whole thing is about that he's saying, and then I want to walk through it again. So, um, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is how one should regard us. He's talking about um, the apostles and um, preachers and teachers, Christian leaders. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If, If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. 
We're, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute, uh, disrepute to the present hour. We hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Well, that's the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. Would you pray with me? Father, help us this morning. We want to be good readers of your word. We want to be good listeners and learners. And so, Father, help us to navigate what um, sounds like uh, very, very forward and uh, straightforward, um, a difficult passage from Paul to the church in Corinth. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you could... Think about it in kind of three sections if you want a simple little outline. I'm not sure I'll follow it exactly, but if if you want to think about how the chapter works out, he's talking um, in the first five, six, seven verses about servanthood and stewardship. This is the the call to ministry. This is what it looks like um, for Christian leaders. They're to be servants. They're to be stewards. And then he moves in, beginning in about verse 8 or 9, to about the end of verse 13. And he's going to talk about being a spectacle to the world and and all that he writes about that. So you've got uh, stewardship, you've got a spectacle. And then the last bit is uh, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, he's going to give them an image of, of fatherhood, spiritual fatherhood, kind of his role that he sees in their life. And the purpose of it is he doesn't want them to be puffed up against each other. He, he doesn't want them to be people who walk around with arrogance and um, w- with an inflated or exaggerated idea of who they are, who they are as a church or who they are personally. So that's what's going on in the chapter. But let's look for a second. If, you, if you'll jump with me to verse 9, that's where I want to start kind of 9 to 13 because it's the it's kind of the heart of the chapter, but it's also one of these very famous Pauline passages, one of these famous paragraphs that Paul writes describing his ministry. And so, oftentimes, um, when uh, young guys or, 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 or gals will come and say, you know, I feel called to ministry, and I, you know, I feel the Lord kind of moving in my life, I'm like, that's really great. 
Here's a great passage to memorize. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 9 through 13. If you memorize that, um, and then you keep the next appointment we've set to talk about you going into ministry, I'll know that this thing might be real, okay? So, so Paul, he's painting this picture, okay? So you want to go into ministry. You want to serve the Lord um, with all your heart and, and for the rest of your life, awesome. This is what you're signing up for. You're not signing up for big stages and lots of people and podcasts and books and acclaim and uh, money and houses and airplanes, depending on what kind of situation you're in. Um, this is what you're signing up for. So, so look at this, at this. He's making a contrast, okay? The, the reality of ministry right now, the Christian life, we can say, even this is the Christian life right now. He, he says, for I, I think, you know, after he said in verse 8, you Corinthians, you, you know, you have everything you want. You, you, you guys, you, you think you've already arrived at everything. Verse 9, but for I think God has exhibited us, a, as, uh, us apostles as last of all. And it, it's meant, he says, that we're the last in the line. And I'll tell you what that means a little more in a minute. But we're at the very end. As examples for you, that, that this is what life is now in a fallen world. Like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world. To angels, to men. And then notice the we and the you. He's contrasting. He's saying, We're fools for Christ. You, however, believe you're wise in Christ. Which he's already told them they're not. He says, we're weak. But you, almighty oh Corinthians, you guys are strong. He says, uh, you, you, you are held in honor. Good for you. We happen to be held in disrepute. To the present hour, we're hungry and we're thirsty. We're poorly dressed. We're buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we're blessed. When persecuted, we endure when slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Do you notice the contrast he's making? We're this, but you're that. You, you, you're claiming that you're that. Now, let me get some nerdy things out of the way real quick. Um, and then I'll, I'll try not to do anything nerdy the rest of the time, all right? But the Corinthians had a, um, a theological problem at their heart. So they had what is what we would call in theology. And so some of you might write this down. Just so you know, if you look and you see your neighbor writing it down, that's a tell that they're a nerd, okay? But, but what it is, is it's called, we call it, over-realized eschatology. Now, let me unpack that for a second. Ex eschatology is when we are looking at the, the age to come, the, the, the day of the Lord to come, the, um, the future, all right? As believers, what happens to us when we trust Christ, and it says we're a new creation, and the old is gone and the new has come. There's a sense in which 
the future is now for us. We, we're like, um, uh, in Christ, we're, you know, we're kind of from the future, you could say, all right? And, and that is this view. And Paul, it's all over Paul's writings, particularly in 1 Corinthians. He's always kind of looking at the day, the day when the Lord comes and the day when the Lord judges and the day when the Lord exposes all the things that are hidden and the day when the Lord rewards. And, and there's a day that he's living for. But that day is not right now. And then there are all these things that have happened to us, this change that has taken place when you become a believer. And some of those things have been inaugurated or initiated right now, but they won't come to full fruition until then. So an over-realized eschatology is trying to say, all of the blessings that we anticipate and look forward to when the Lord returns, all those are somehow now, or mine now. So this is one of the, the errors that you have in a prosperity theology that God wants Christians to be healthy, wealthy, wise, rich, and give lots and lots of that money away back to the preacher um, right now, okay? That prosperity theology, God doesn't want anybody to be sick. Well, that's not true. We live in a fallen world, a broken world. We are promised in the New Testament, we're, we're promised suffering. We're not promised glory now, we're promised glory then. But you have a whole host of, of Christians that are trying to grasp and get all the glory that they can right now in the name of what, you know, God has promised. And God hasn't promised glory now. He's promised glory then. And this is part of why they were having these divisions, because one guy was promising this, and one guy was promising that, and he said, well, I like this guy's thing, and I like that guy's thing. And, and Paul's saying, y'all, y'all are crazy. You're, you're fighting over an illusion that you're created for yourself. You're, you're playing make-believe with Christianity. Let me tell you what life is really like in the here and now as a believer. This is not anything to be discouraged about, by the way. Well, we serve the, the king on high. We are indwelt with the very Spirit of God. But man, we live and walk and navigate in this time in history in a fallen world. And the world is raging against those who would follow Christ. And, and we'll experience that. We'll be buffeted by that, Paul says. All right, it, it works itself out because in the next chapter, Paul's going to say, he, he, here's the fruit of your over-realized eschatology, okay? This is the fruit of you believing all the blessings of the kingdom are right now. The fruit is you have a dude that's prominent in your church that's having an affair with his stepmother. That's bad. You guys are so sideways with each other 
that you're suing each other. You're taking each other to court. So, what Paul's doing here is he's trying to highlight for them they're in a fantasy land. They're, they have an illusion about who they are. And they're doing everything they can to protect it. All right. That's kind of the heart of the passage. Now, let me walk you through real quickly, beginning to end, and let's see how everything fits together. At the very beginning, um, he, he's, he says, hey, look, th- this is how you should regard us. And in, in chapter 3... He's given them three sort of images of, a, of, a, of you know, who they are as the church. They're a, uh, they're a field, and God's the gardener. Um, they're a, um, a builder, and God's the architect. They're a temple, and he's the God who, who uh, dwells in the temple. That, that's who you are as the church. We looked at that last week. This week, he's, he's saying, look, let me give you a couple of things. This is who we are as, the, as Christian leaders, and who we are as ministers of the gospel, and, and by extension, he means all of us, really. We're all ministers of the gospel. We've all been given gifts of the Spirit to build up the body of Christ. And so, specifically, he's talking about himself, Apollos, the apostles. He, he's going to say in, in verse 6, I'm, I, I was saying all these things about me because I wasn't wanting to name any names, but really, I'm talking about everybody. So look at what he says, verse 1. This is how you should regard us. This is how we're to be regarded, accounted for. It's an accounting term. This is how you balance the books. This is how you get things in order. We don't rank pastors or, or Christian leaders in terms of popularity or outward success. This is not how you do it. God's balance sheet gives us a couple of, of assets here. In the, the stewards of Christ or servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. So, the word servant there is not the usual word Paul uses for servant, the, the one doulos that means slave, and it, it is a, it's, a, it's a like word, it's a similar word, but it's a word that literally means under rower, and uh, an under rower, the picture is that you had like a ship in the galley of the ship in the very bottom of the ship, like underneath, you know, the, like in the dungeon of a ship, all right? Let's say it that way where the guys are down there and they're rowing. They're rowing under the ship where it smells really bad and there's no light. And you row and your arms are exhausted and your back is out and you got you know, guys on one side and guys on the other side and you're rowing and you that's the... That's the idea. He says, look, you, you, the, the, to be a servant of Christ, you, you row, you row, baby, you're underneath. There's no glamour. There's nobody, there's no, it's part of his reason to saying this. It's like, because how ridiculous would it be for somebody to go, oh, you know what? Um, well, that's my favorite rower. I, he's the guy getting us where we need to go. That'd be silly because you'd look and go, well, that's crazy. They're all rowing. They're all rowing in unison. They're all moving. And they're all doing that in concert with the captain's orders, the captain's wishes. All right? Servants of Christ, under rowers for Christ. That's the, that's the issue. 
And, and by the way, you know, to serve the church, to serve the congregation. But they're servants of Christ. Where I think churches get in trouble, and I'm not, you guys are perfect. I'm talking about churches out there is that you, where the pastor's the servant of the church, but the congregation's not the master of the pastor, all right? Jesus is the master. You know, some people are like, well, you, you have, you know, 800 bosses. No, I don't. Um, I, could, I might have 800 problems, but I only have one <laughs> boss, all right? Then he says, stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards, so charged with serving the master. One who has a responsibility uh, given over something, okay? And, and, and what the responsibility is over is the mysteries of God. We say, okay, well, what are the mysteries of God? Well, if you went back to chapter 2, you know, in context, he tells us we impart... Chapter 2, verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. It goes on, we would no eyes seen or ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. And he's talking about what God's revealed about himself, his word. He's talking about God's word, stewards of the mysteries of God. Charged with serving the master, Jesus responsible for and, and over the teaching and the preaching and the defending and the explaining and the setting before the congregation the Word of God, the, the gospel, the living, active Word that's sharper than a two-edged sword, the, the Word in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 that puts us to death and, and brings us to life and the word that has the ability to renew our minds and transform our hearts. And that's the only thing charged with. Servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I, I have no other primary role than to stand behind this pulpit on a Sunday morning as we open God's word. This is not a time for my opinions. This is not a time for um, you know, uh, the, the latest and greatest cause to be championed. None of those things. In verse 2, to be faithful stewards. Too often that word faithful is used to describe a good brother who's uh, relatively unsuccessful, right? You know. Kind of like, Ooh, he's, but he's got a great personality. You know, he's faithful. That's not how Paul means it at all. He means, look, this is honorable. This is respectful. This is faithful. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he'll say what it means to be a faithful servant. I delivered what I received. That's faithfulness. Jesus in Matthew 24 and Luke chapter 12 and in lots of the parables that he tells. He speaks of the faithful and the wise steward. 
Well, that's the task of the Christian leader, of the teacher, the preacher, the elder. Faithful to what they've been charged. Faithful to stay in the lane that's charged. It actually translates into every sphere of ministry. A faithfulness. Serving Christ faithfully. Stewards of the mysteries of God. And that translates. Listen, if, you're gre- if you're a greeter here at Bethel, here's the deal. You're the first impression of somebody who walks in. You, you, are, it, you are greeting someone. You, you're welcoming them. Helping them orient. Get here in a place to be received so they can receive the mysteries of the Word of God. It happens everywhere on this campus. In our children's ministry, in our Bible studies, in our small groups. We're called into this. Now, in verses 3 and 4, Paul explains his own conscience, his own um, ministry here. He's not saying when he says these words, he's not saying, look, I'm above accountability. You know, I don't need any self-awareness. Not at all. It just, you need to be prepared that your life and ministry can hold up to criticism. The, what he's addressing is, is the Corinthians, they were using the wrong scales by which to judge. They were using the wrong metrics of success. So, so when we judge each other with the wrong criteria, we let each other down. What he's saying, look, in relation to you know, being the servant and the steward and faithful, if that's the metric, as far as I know, my conscience is clear. At the end of the day, the, the preacher or the Christian leader or the small group leader, you know, or the fifth grade Sunday school teacher, you, you have to be kind of at the end of the day, you've got to be unfazed as much as possible on, on whether, you know, the the, the congregation gave you approval or not. I mean, you have to be able to go home and take a nap with a conscience that says, I rode as hard as I could. You know, I stewarded the best I could. I was faithful. I kept my motives in check the best I could. I, if I did that, I can take a nap. If I did that, I can trust the Lord. Listen, I can tell you there have been a lot of Sundays. This is a hard thing to work out, by the way. I spent 25 years here in this paragraph. Man, I was a preacher and I first started out and I was really terrible. I mean, I'm not just saying that. Like, I'm not just being self-deprecating. I'm being for real. And I would go home and I'd feel so bad. I mean, I would go home and get in the bed. I wouldn't even take my shoes off. I would get in the bed with my shoes on and just cover my head think, oh man, what am I doing? That's so terrible. You to come to a place and you go, what? Well, was I faithful? Did I do the best I could? Did I row as hard as I could? Okay. I'm like, I got to trust the Lord with that. Problem is when we begin to look around and go, well, man, what I'm doing doesn't seem to be as important as what somebody else is doing. No. It, that's not the criteria. Every teacher, verse 5, will be judged when, when exposed to the light. Every Christian leader. Actually, in the context of what Paul's been saying, 
chapter 3, chapter 4. He'll say it again in chapter 5. In chapter, every believer will be judged for what they've done. L- listen to how the message, Eugene Peterson's translation, uh, renders these few verses. It is helpful to me sometimes. You know, I'm reading Paul and I'm like, Man, I'm having a hard time getting that. Eugene Peterson's helpful to me. He, he, so this is his translation. He says, it matters very little to me what you think of me, even less where I rank in popular opinion. I, I don't even rank myself. Comparisons in these matters are pointless. I'm not aware of anything that would disqualify me from being a good guide for you, but that doesn't mean much. The master makes that judgment. So don't get ahead of the master and Jump to conclusions with your judgments before all the evidence is in. When he comes, he'll bring out in the open and place in evidence all kinds of things we never even dreamed of. Inner motives and purposes and prayers. Only then will any of us be able to hear well done of God. You see, the king's coming. He's the one that's going to give out the prizes. We don't have all the information. This is not our deal to ultimately judge. It doesn't mean, look, we're not held accountable. I say something dumb. I, I, I pursue my own agenda. I, you know, listen, there are elders in place. There are people in the congregation. That you, you, yeah, you have a right to say, look, I, I think he's off the mark there, whatever. This is, you know, this is not anti-accountability. It's very pro-accountability. It's just we don't judge based upon the things the world judges on. The, the criteria of the world about success and effectiveness and efficiency and leadership, we don't judge based on that criteria. And he's saying to the Corinthians, you think your human judgment is actually divine judgment. And it's not. It's judgment based on the wrong criteria, on the wrong information, or on an incomplete story. There are things hidden now that we can't see. And this isn't a dreadful f- phrase. Look, when it all gets revealed, you'll get a commendation. You'll hear, as Peterson said, well done. The prizes will be given out. There'll be some surprises on that day, right? It's true, but we have no idea. Faithfulness. You know what faithfulness is not? Faithfulness is not flashy. It's, it's showing up when you say you're going to show up. It, your yes being yes and your no being no. It's living in faithfulness with your wife. It's caring for your children. It's It's living faithful in singleness, serving Christ and loving others and making a thousand difficult decisions every week, withstanding the onslaught of a culture that that wants to mock you and scorn your integrity. It's the faithful person, unnoticed, unappreciated, misunderstood, the mom who faithfully makes lunches. Day after day after day after day and gives baths and reads at bedtime and who's judged by others for not being more successful in some career or having some successful side hustle or mommy blog or whatever. 
But here's what Paul's saying. It's ultimately irrelevant what sentence is passed upon you by men or others. The only thing that matters is the scrutiny of God who will apportion reward and punishment in the right way. And as the local church, we don't want to miss that point. And the church is phenomenal at missing points sometimes. Well, quickly, don't be puffed up, verse 6. I applied all these things to myself, Apollos, for your benefit. I'm, actually, I'm talking about you guys. I just didn't want to be so on the nose. So I, was, I applied it to, to us, and, and, and I'm using us as examples, because I don't want you to go beyond what's written. I don't want you to go beyond God's Word. That's what we want to hear. And the purpose is that we wouldn't be puffed up, that you wouldn't be puffed up. You wouldn't have such an elevated view of yourself. Exaggerated view. All right, here's a little rant. The way in which we view ourselves has a direct impact on the way we treat others and the way in which we're treated by others. And it's important that we pay attention to what the Bible says about who we are. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul will say to the Romans there, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith God has assigned you. Don't, don't exaggerate your importance. You want to have a sane estimate of who you are and your capabilities. He's, he's instructing us about that because it doesn't come naturally to us. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul is, is instructing us not to buy into the exaggeration of ourselves that we love so much. We have a tidal wave today of low self-esteem theology. You know, it's engulfed us. It's become the malady from which we all need to be cured, you know? We will never be happy or successful or influential influencers with low self-esteem. You know, how can we ever expect anyone to like our posts, reels, or if we don't like ourselves, right? Something like that. So, so somehow, and I, I don't know how or understand why, but the solution to that is not to get the heck off of social media. The solution is to post more pictures of yourself. I mean, we can't let people forget what we look like for longer than 24 hours at a time. And what you lack in wisdom can be made up with increased visibility of flesh. And if you can't swing that, you do a dance. I don't know, saying out loud makes it sound dumber than it really is, right? <laughs> but thou that speaks to the heart of the answer that the world offers. That what you really need to do is you need to convince yourself of this. You're lovable. You're important. You're powerful. You're enough. And you can buy little books, you know, like devotional type. But they're not really devotionals. Because the message or the thought for the day, you know, every single day, it tells you how unbelievably fantastic you are, the amazing you, you know, the, the amazing me. And it's worth every penny we pay for them, right? 
It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do. They're for everybody the same. You're lovable, amazing, inspirational. No, you can be in prison or be a deadbeat dad or a bank robber. I mean, you're awesome. Don't ever forget it. But it all betrays us a little bit, doesn't it? When it doesn't really line up. I mean, you get your positive feels for the day. You know, you get up early, you get the dose. But, but the problem is your wife has some real issues with you. You know, she's frustrated. You won't take out the trash. You won't stop lying to her. You won't be nice to her. And there's this disconnect between the amazing me and how my wife feels. And so we think, you know, she's probably wrong. Because this, the wonderful meme I read today about my awesomeness. Listen, I'm exaggerating all that for a fact. But maybe I'm not. If we believe that the Bible is God's final word to us, as we do. And if we believe in, that in the Scriptures we have all that's necessary for life and for godliness, then we need to be prepared to bring our Bibles into evidence to adjudicate the pressures of the culture rather than allowing the culture to determine the emphases. We don't want to be people that exclude what God's Word says. As we buy into all that's going on out there. This is what's happening in Corinth. Paul writes to Timothy later in 2 Timothy 3, and he warns about the last days. Men will be lovers of themselves. That's Satan's agenda for the world. We live in a culture that prescribes for a cure what the Bible calls a sickness. Now, sitting that you wallow in your shame is not what Paul means. Sitting that every time you look in the mirror, you go, oh man, what a loser. That's not what Paul means. Here's what we say when we look in the mirror. But for the grace of God, I mean, listen, I'm a sinner. My heart's more wicked than I could possibly imagine. And if it were not for the grace of God, this intervened in my life. I'd be nothing. why he says who verse 7 what do you have that you didn't receive if then you received it why do you boast about it as though you did not receive it and then the dripping sarcasm you you think you've already arrived you're grabbing at all the glory now think you get all you you want and have it all now and Paul says that's not realistic it's not who you are it's not who we are and then the passage we looked at just a little bit ago and the purpose in verse 14, he says, I didn't write this to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to shame you. I want to admonish you. I want to encourage you as children, as, as your father. Your father in Christ. I gave you the gospel and 
I care so deeply about you. This ministry. It's what your leaders are called to. It's what your pastor's called to, your elders. And it's what we're called to in each other's lives. 41 another verses or more in the New Testament. Talking about how we're to live with one another for each other's good. That's the church. No wonder they were at each other's throats. No wonder there was so much division. They were all looking out for themselves. Paul says, that's not what we do. It's not who we are. And then I love it. He says, look, look, there are some people, they're hoping I don't come to visit you. But I am coming, Lord willing. And then we're going to see, are they all talk or not? And Paul knows they're all talk. And then he gives them a choice. I'll come with a rod or I'll come with gentleness. Both of those, however, would be a demonstration of love. Here's a couple of takeaways. We've got to go. We never go or we never grow beyond the gospel. If you're not spending time in God's word and reminding yourself what God says, even if you look at it and get a hard chapter like four and think, man, I've got to wrestle with this. and I don't understand all I'm saying. That's okay. But we never grow beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. Secondly, I'd say, look, all that we believe about the gospel needs to be working itself out in our life. The behavior of our life needs to be in sync with and aligned with the truth of the gospel. What it means that we're sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ. The church, who we are as God's people. Our life is a demonstration of the cross. Our life, we wouldn't be surprised if our life looks more like 9 through 13. Than a commercial for Disneyland. Our life's a picture of the cross. But oh, the glory to come. Oh, the judgment to come. We look forward to that as believers. So I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're discouraged. I want you to be encouraged with what Paul says. Your life is seen. God sees you. Servant, steward, be faithful. It's not a waste. It's not a waste. If you're here and you're all puffed up, I want you to hear Paul's rod beat you over the head. In love. Don't be ashamed. It's 
an opportunity to renew your mind this morning. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, pray you'd, you'd help us. I pray your word would penetrate down into the, the joints and the marrow of our soul and unfold us and divide us and convict us and comfort us. And Father, we want to be more like your son, Jesus. And so we trust you with that. Father, I pray that as a people of faith, we would keep our eyes on you in the midst of a world and a culture that is filled with distraction. Father, we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.